This morning we are in Acts chapter 26. We're going to be looking at that chapter in its entirety this morning. I don't know if you have read the rest of Acts, but Acts goes to chapter 28. Brothers and sisters, we are nearing the end. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive God's word for us this day. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, for our edification. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 26 of Acts, the word of God, it is written. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all of the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from you spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice, said, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. I mentioned last Sunday that Paul's defense before Agrippa is the longest and most theologically explicit of any of Paul's defenses in Acts. And we don't want to miss how climactic this moment is in the book of Acts. Everything since Paul was arrested in the temple in chapter 21 has been building up to this. And even as there are aspects of Paul's speech here that we have heard before, we also shouldn't miss how remarkable it is that we are here in the 26th chapter of Acts. Years have gone by since Paul's Damascus Road experience, but here is Paul still proclaiming the same exact thing. And we should be struck by the reality that Paul's message never changed because Paul never lost in amazement at the work of God in his life. But more importantly, his message remained consistent because the gospel never changed. But we might wonder, what kind of defense is this? What kind of defense is this? Who would get up and share his conversion story as a means of defense in a trial? Well, that's a very good question. 
And what we need to recognize is that this isn't exactly a criminal trial. At least Paul wasn't looking at it that way. Rather, he understood that his appeal to Caesar had granted him a trip to Rome. So this hearing before Agrippa was an informal one. And Paul approached it then as an opportunity to share the gospel. Paul had a captive audience. It was a captive audience of powerful people, influential people. But at the end of the day for Paul, it was a room filled with lost people. It was a room filled with people who didn't know the love of God in Jesus Christ and who were perishing in their sins. This was the type of moment that Paul would later ask the Colossians to pray he would get and use well. He wrote to them, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. This is why Paul notes how fortunate he feels to have this opportunity when he stands up to speak. So even as he says that he is defending himself against the accusations that have been made against him, Paul took this as a golden opportunity to expound the gospel for them in clear ways and in clear hopes that it would lead them to place faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul delivered here was an apology. It was an apology. Not an apology as in he was sorry for something. He wasn't apologizing for causing a commotion in the temple or for offending anyone's religious sensibilities. It was an apology as in he was making his defense. This is what Paul says he is doing in verse 2. The word for defense here derives from the Greek word apologia. This is where we get our word apologetics. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this word in the realm of evangelism, apologetics refers to an intellectual defense of the truth of the Christian faith. This is exactly what Paul is doing here. And do you see here that Paul cared not about finding favor in the eyes of his audience? He wasn't trying to tickle their ears with lofty speech. He, he wasn't attempting to dazzle them with his intellect, nor was he endeavoring to win their pity. What he wanted was simple. He wanted to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. What he wanted was for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ and so we find him here repeatedly presenting Jesus as the Messiah who came in accordance with the prophets, was killed, was raised from the dead in order that there might be redemption from sin and restoration to relationship with God. And Paul, in asking very direct questions, also made repeated appeals here for his audience to consider the person and work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the sake of leading them to submit their lives to Jesus through faith. What a beautiful picture Luke is painting for us here of the heart and the boldness of an evangelist. And since Peter exhorts all of us as believers in Christ to always be prepared to make a what? A defense 
to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in you, we need to pay careful attention here. This is the master Christian apologist at work. And the question for us is, what would our gospel presentation sound like if we were given the chance? If God opened to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, what what would we say? What would we say about the person and work of Jesus? What would we tell others about the gospel's impact on our life? We should desire to take advantage of these opportunities. And Luke provides for us here an example in Paul. What can we learn from him today? I want to provide, present to you three things that Paul has presented here concerning the gospel that we should take note of. Here they are. The gospel is rational, the gospel is transformative, and the gospel is gracious. So let's look at these as a means to consider our own witness to the gospel. So first, we see that Paul presents the gospel as rational. It is reasonable. Paul begins his defense by stating his credentials. As Paul stated, stated in his letter to the Philippians, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, the strictest of all the Jews. He had earlier established in his defense before the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22 that he was discipled under Gamaliel. He also told of his initial opposition to Jesus Christ here and his persecution of Christians. What's his point in doing this and starting his defense in this way? Well, for one, he wanted to connect with his audience. He wanted his audience to understand, and Agrippa in particular, that he shared the same faith that the Jews professed. He had studied it. He had believed it. He had lived it. He had sought to follow the law and to punish those who deviated from the Orthodox faith. We should never underestimate the importance of connecting personally with those we are sharing our faith with. But Paul also wanted to establish that all Jews, including himself, had been taught to long for the Messiah. The prophets had proclaimed that the Messiah was coming and that through him there would come about a resurrection from the dead. This was, as Paul says, the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And Paul then asks, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? The point is that all who claim the Jewish faith shouldn't think it incredible from the perspective of it being unheard of. It wasn't. God had declared it through his prophets. And and even as Paul railed against Jesus and Jesus's people. Paul ultimately came to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies, of these promises. He was shaken from his blindness to who Jesus was and his conversion experience. This is why he recounts this story here. He wanted to communicate that he had been blinded by a light that opened his eyes to the truth of the resurrected Christ. He had personally encountered the resurrected Christ. So as Paul proclaimed later in his defense, so I stand here testifying saying nothing 
but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You see, Paul was establishing that the gospel was not novel. It was not some made-up religion. Jesus was not simply some self-proclaimed prophet or Messiah who had come out of nowhere. God had revealed himself to the Jewish people, giving them the law which displayed his character, and had spoken through the prophets, calling his people to faithfulness and providing them with hope, telling them of a coming Messiah. And in and through the Jewish people and their customs, God had created a womb from which the Messiah would be born. So all of their law, rituals, the tabernacle and temple, the priesthood, the kings, all of this, they were all signs that pointed to the Messiah, that prepared the way for him, that he might be recognized when he arrived. Everything was leading up to Jesus, and he fit the bill, as it were, in every respect. And not only this, but there was that pesky objective historical fact of his resurrection from the dead that we discussed last Sunday. It vindicated all of Jesus's ministry. It affirmed that he was the Messiah who had come to deliver the people of God from sin and darkness and usher them into God's kingdom. And look at what Paul says here in verse 26. He insisted that Grippa knew about these things because as Paul stated here, This has not been done in a corner. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were all very public. And the effects of Jesus' resurrection, which included the apostles going out and proclaiming the gospel and, and the explosive growth of the church, was not hidden. It was not done in secret. It was all done in the light of day. It was part of the historical record. And there were still living those who could testify to these things. Remember, Agrippa's own father had Peter arrested and James, the brother of John, killed. The apostles had witnessed something so profound that they all went out with a singular focus of proclaiming Christ. And for almost all of them, it led to their death. What would cause such a powerful effect in these men's lives? This is what Paul's point is here. None of this has happened in a corner. The Christian faith then is not irrational. It is perfectly rational. It is backed by thousands of years of revelation and prophecy. It is backed by the objective historical realities of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is backed by the witness of the apostles who were committed to it even unto death. Who goes to their death for a made-up story? Moreover, is it really so crazy to think that God has a power to raise the dead? If you believe in a God who is supremely powerful, a God who spoke creation into existence from nothingness, does God not have the power to bring life from death? Is death too powerful for Almighty God to overcome and defeat? The Christian faith is not irrational. In fact, it is 
perfectly rational. It perfectly aligns with who God has revealed himself to be and his purposes in history. Therefore, what Paul is presenting as irrational is his former way of life that raged against Christians. This is what the phrase translated raging fury means in verse 11. It means out of one's mind with anger. All of the Jews who had this attitude toward Christ and his followers were the irrational ones. Additionally, Festus and all the pagans were equally irrational. Was their worldview rational? Is it rational to hold to an existence that only focuses on the material world? That believes that all of this is here by accident? That believes there is no purpose? That denies that God exists? Is that reasonable? Hardly. Those who live like this are kicking against the goads because their worldview doesn't take into true account the complexity and diversity of the universe. It sets the human self, which is finite and flawed, as the ultimate authority. That is deeply irrational. But notice that it is Paul who has to defend himself in verse 24 against the accusation made by Festus that he is out of his mind. Festus had heard enough and interrupted Paul. And how did Paul respond? Verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. The gospel is very rational. Now, part of the reason why Festus said this to Paul was on account of Paul's assertion of the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection was way out of Festus's worldview. He didn't even have a category for it. So Paul immediately redirected this to Agrippa. Agrippa, I know you know about these things. You know about the prophets for what the prophets foretold. You know about the resurrection that was hoped for. Agrippa did have a category for it. But this charge of insanity also came from the reality that Paul had subjected himself to great suffering for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Paul stated that he had gone around proclaiming the gospel and that the Jews had tried to kill him on account of what he proclaimed. This is something that the world cannot understand. Why would someone be doing something that would cause themselves great suffering? This flies in the face of a philosophy of the world that is hedonistic, a philosophy that makes the ultimate goal the pursuit of pleasure and the minimization of pain. For Paul, though, he was simply obeying what the Lord had commissioned him to do. He knew that his joy was ultimately found in living in accordance with God's will. Did you notice how quickly Paul moved from his conversion to his commissioning? Paul didn't linger on his conversion here. There are fewer details here than when his conversion story has been told elsewhere in Acts. Rather, Paul moved right from his credentials to his conversion to his commissioning. This is what he really wanted to focus on. I'm going to come back to the commissioning in just a moment. But for now, we need to see how Paul presented his suffering. Paul had suffered many things in the path of obedience. But what else was he to do? What, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Paul's chief end was to bring glory to Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all of the glory. 
who is worthy of all of the praise, who is worthy of Paul giving his very life because Jesus had given his very life for Paul. This is the most rational thing we can do. We can live out the purpose for which we were created. This was in part what Paul wanted his audience to understand. What is irrational is to do otherwise. To pretend as though there is no God, to ignore his created order, to ignore his sovereign rule, and to invent our own purpose. To develop our own plans apart from God, to pursue things that are fading, that is the height of irrationality. But dearly beloved, the world wants to paint Christians as the fanatics, doesn't it? Christians are the ones who have crazy beliefs and do crazy things, right? They follow the teachings of some obscure man who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. They hold some ancient book filled with myths to be authoritative, pure silliness. This is what people think about Christians. Christians are painted as the irrational ones. But let's remember something. Let's remember that this is coming from the same people who are saying that men can have babies, who are saying that there are infinite numbers of genders, that prepubescent children should be allowed to change their gender, that abortions save lives. Those are the ones saying Christians are irrational. And I don't say that to be ugly to anyone or demean anyone, but merely to point out there is a spirit of confusion and darkness in this world that has blinded many to the truth. And as someone once said, when the whole world is running towards the cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. The reality is that the gospel brings sanity to an insane world. And we should not be ashamed to boldly proclaim it. And as we do this, we should be intentional in presenting the gospel as fully rational and so allow it to shine its light into the darkness. Just because you have faith in something that is unseen doesn't mean that faith is anti-intellectual. It doesn't mean that it's ahistorical. It doesn't mean that it's irrational. There's actually plenty of evidence to support the Christian faith. There's plenty of evidence that the Bible is trustworthy that the stories found in the Bible are historically accurate. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the dead. And it is completely rational to believe that he is the prophesied Messiah and the Lord of the universe and that our lives should be lived in obedience to him. Second, the gospel is transformative. The gospel is transformative. What was it that could make a learned man, a zealous man, a man that had everything going for him, turn and go 180 degrees in the opposite direction? What was it that could make a man be willing to suffer the loss of all things? In beginning with his credentials and then moving to his conversion, commissioning to Christian service and his conformity to that call, Paul is challenging us to, to think about this, isn't he? He's holding out his life for us and for his audience because there's something that is shocking about the turn that Paul's life had taken. This is the fruit of the gospel taking hold of his life. The reality is that not every Christian has a story um, like this, but we each have a story that is unique to our own life. 
We don't all have a dramatic conversion story. Not every story is going to be like Paul's Damascus Road experience whereby we are blinded by a heavenly light and hear the voice of Jesus. Some of you here today were blessed to grow up in a church and you can't remember a day when you didn't know Jesus and hadn't placed faith in him. But there is also something that every Christian does share. Everyone who has had a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus should be living a transformed life. It doesn't matter if that encounter came when you were five or when you were 50. Your life should bear the fruit of one who has been delivered from darkness and moved into God's marvelous light. Now, too often the gospel gets presented as merely being about the forgiveness of sins. It gets presented as though this is all the death of Christ accomplishes for us, that our sins are forgiven. And don't misunderstand me. The forgiveness of sins is hugely important. If our sins are not dealt with, if Jesus' death doesn't atone for our sins, then we're not set right with God and we do not have peace with God. Forgiveness of sins is vital. But notice where Paul's emphasis lies. In recalling his commissioning to Christian service, Paul stated that Jesus had commissioned him as a servant and witness to go to those whom Christ would send him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And Paul said he obeyed this calling and went, proclaiming that his hearers should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, but the focus is more on the transforming power of the gospel, which moves people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, which moves people to turn from their sins in order that they might live sanctified lives, lives which demonstrate the fruit of their repentance. What Paul is describing here is the gospel's power to bring about new life in which a believer is born again in the power of the Spirit and lives a life pleasing to God. The goal of the gospel isn't simply the forgiveness of sins. The goal of the gospel is to produce in us righteousness. It is newness of life, rebirth in which the believer lives a righteous life. So what Paul tells the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what does this entail? Well, Paul tells the Ephesians that God had chosen us from the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And that therefore we should put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul tells us to the Thessalonians, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And this is what Paul tells Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see the pattern here? We see here Paul declaring that those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ will live a changed life. Something more than forgiveness of sins happened on the road to Damascus. A true heart change occurred in which Paul's affections were transformed. His purpose in life was redirected. His will found a new strength of new source of strength. His hopes were dramatically altered. Paul presented himself as exhibit A. And he did this by moving from his conversion to his commission, a calling to pursue Christ for his glory, to be a servant and a witness. By the way, this is the same commission as the other apostles received. It's the same commission that every believer receives upon placing faith in Jesus Christ. It just plays itself out differently in all of our lives. But Paul desperately wanted to show that he had received new life and, and that he was bearing the fruit of obedience in his life. A true believer won't merely be sorry for his or her sins. He or she will in real ways demonstrate through his or her living that Jesus Christ is now dwelling within, is Lord and Savior over his or her life and is empowering that life. It isn't just about trying harder to live a more moral life. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit that produces something in us. And yet we also work out our faith with fear and trembling. We're both guided by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit. And maybe some of you were like me before I came to Christ. I looked at the believers I knew and I saw something in them. I saw life. I saw purpose. I saw righteousness. And, and I had tried so hard to, to be good and I had failed and I felt the weight of my guilt. And I desired whatever it was that my friends had. Paul knew that there was something very appealing about the transformation that occurs in a believer's life. This is why he included this in his gospel presentation. It's an important part of our Christian witness. Third and finally, the gospel is gracious. The gospel is gracious. What a shocking thing it is to go from Paul raging against Christians to submitting his life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus chose Paul a known enemy, to be forgiven and restored and commissioned for the work of God's kingdom. Was Paul deserving of being chosen by Jesus Christ for salvation? Of course not. Paul declared himself to be the worst of all sinners. He had actively opposed Jesus. He had persecuted the saints, hunted them down, imprisoned them, cast his vote against them for their executions, tortured them in an attempt to get them to deny the name of Jesus. And Jesus took that very personally. And yet God was gracious to deliver Paul from darkness and sin and welcome Paul into his kingdom. 
And Paul understood his commission to, to go to both Jews and Gentiles in order that they too might be saved from the power of Satan and receive eternal life. It was because of God's grace that Paul was delivered. And it was by God's grace that Paul was sent to go and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. God's grace is not small. It is not stingy. And it was God's grace that Paul declared to Agrippa and Festus and all who sat in the room that day. Paul expressed his desire that all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Paul knew the graciousness of God to save. And he knew that the kindness of God would lead those God had called to repentance and faith. So he proclaimed the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And, and consider what is happening here. A man stood in chains before a crowd, his life on trial. And he used this not as an opportunity to complain about being unjustly detained to express his anger and frustration or to take shots at them for their haughtiness or their immorality. Rather, he used it as an opportunity to express that they too could know the forgiveness of sins and newness of life offered in Jesus Christ. God does not turn away from any who come to him in repentance and faith. It doesn't matter what someone has done. It doesn't matter the depth of their sin. It it doesn't matter because the blood of Christ is sufficient. The grace of God is enough. Dearly beloved, oh, that we too would never fail to present the gospel and to present it in this way. Our defense must not be merely an intellectual argument. It isn't about winning a debate. We must be holding out the beauty and goodness of God in Jesus Christ. We must offer Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead that we too might know new life, true life, abundant life. And by God's grace, we can hold out our lives, our own lives as exhibit A as Paul did showing forth the power of God to save and bring forth life from death, even in miserable sinners such as ourselves. And may God expand his kingdom through us in this way, and may he receive all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that here we find Paul's defense of the Christian faith, Lord, and I pray that this would spur us to consider our own defense of our own faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would be able to point to the Lord, that we'd be able to point to ourselves and the work of the Lord in us. Lord, give us opportunities, open for us doors to proclaim your excellencies, and Lord, may we have words empowered by the Spirit which contain the gospel, which has the power to save. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? 